Welcome to the RGG EDU podcast, where they talk a little photography and drink a lot of whiskey. Season three of the RGG EDU podcast is brought to you by Smug Mug. Yeah, they got a ridiculous grin and the name is funny, but Smug Mug is serious about photography. If you're ready to upgrade your photo game online, get your ass over to SmugMug.com to see where the pros are storing, showing, and selling their images. In this episode, we're joined with the one and only Joel Grimes. Yeah, I've, I'm really excited about this one, Rob. Sure, Grimm. who isn't excited? And we also have right. Renee Robin. Mm-hmm. So, Still here. Joel, you're one of maybe the first educators when I was first getting into photography that I saw, and I was just, your images stopped me from, you know, turning the page or scrolling, whatever it was. That's and cool. now you're like, un, you know, you're just absolutely recognizable. So, well, that's part of the whole branding process. And I talk a lot about branding. Bringing your look to the marketplace, it's not easy, but it's possible, and I'm a testimony to that. Uh, I'm not brilliant, but uh, when you beat something into the ground long enough, it takes, you know, hold, and that's what I'm good at. So I always say I'm not, I'm not a creative genius, and I'm not brilliant, but I do have this tenacity to work really hard and then stick with something. You know, when I was studying fine arts, uh, I kind of rubbed elbows with the photojournalist guys, you know, gals, and they were used to creating stories. You know, they want to change the world. And in the fine arts, it was like, you know, photograph your shadow and then, you know, make it really cool. <laughs> and and uh, when I got in the commercial world, um, I didn't really understand the concept of, well, obviously marketing, branding, but, um, you know, sticking with something long enough to where it actually takes hold. So it took me a while to really learn that. And I think the first time that it made sense, I did a book on the Navajo. I spent two years in the field living out of a Volkswagen van. That was back when I had hair. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I had to stick with one thing for two years, one subject matter. And in, on, one, on one side of the coin, it was torture because it's like, I want to move on. I'm kind of done. And the other side, I realized that I got better and better and better every time I approached the same subject. So I walked away from that with a coffee table book, but I always said it, it wasn't really the coffee table book that was the greatest sort of benefit. It was this concept that I stuck with something long enough to where I had a body of work that represented something that was presented to the marketplace. To see it through completely. See it through, yeah. And so, that, like I said, it was torture on one hand, but then there was this part of me that realized I got really good at something. Right. So I've taken that. That was back when I was 33. I started that book. Um, I've taken that concept of uh, sticking with the subject matter long enough to where it takes root. As being one of probably the most recognizable photographers, I think it's easy to be defined. So how would you define yourself and how do you want people to perceive you as a photographer? Well, I started out doing landscapes in, college, well, in high school and then college. Well, in high school, I was like on the yearbook staff and, mm-hmm. you know, you learned how to process film. And, you know, I didn't really think about photography, you know, as a living or occupation. Uh, and then I, I took my first college class, Pima Community College in uh, college in uh, Tucson, Arizona. And there was an amazing professor there, Lou Bernal. And he changed everything. And uh, instead of looking at photography as a way to document the world um, around me, you know, like go on a backpack trip and you document it, um, he lit the sort of torch in my, you know, sort of under me that said photography is a way uh, as a creative process, as an artist, to go and build something you can hang on the wall. And so, and I've been chasing that ever since now, but I was doing all landscapes. So I was going to be Ansel Adams Jr., right? <clears throat> the large la- uh, format landscape approach. And then I was in uh, out of college working with a buddy of mine in a studio in Denver, started a studio. And I took the architecture or the uh, landscape approach to architecture. So that makes sense, large format. And then as I started knocking on doors, um, it's a long story, but I ended up, doing my first portrait, kind of a lifestyle portrait with a interior with a mom and dad, two kids on a couch. And I did not light. So I had to start lighting. And then I started doing more people, more people. And all of a sudden I just came into this love for portraits. And I had studied a little bit of the masters like Irving Penn and uh, looking back at, you know, I didn't, I looked at that work, but I didn't think, Oh, I could ever do that. 
uh, be a portrait photographer. And so, um, but then once I sort of thought, oh, I like this, and it's just as much fun as shooting landscapes, if not better, I switched to becoming really a portrait photographer. So now I'm driven by the portrait. And I do, I'll, I'll still do things like I'm working on a project now, I'm photographing uh, Harley Davidson's motorbikes, but and I'm shooting the product too, the bike. The bike is a piece of artwork, right. and so I have to learn how to light that and do it right. Uh, but I'm really, it's a portrait-driven project. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a portrait photographer. Denver in the 80s was a tough place. I mean, I graduated from Boulder Fine Arts and in 89 and could not, did not stay in Denver because the market was so tough. Yeah. What did you grab a hold to at that time and, and really kind of build your career and that was a tough city for photography well it was and then i i got married and my wife amy she um had a job opportunity in washington dc um and so we moved in 87 okay to dc for three years i finally came back after five years so i did the book and i came back then i spent the whole 90s in in denver so total i think i was spent about 15 years 18 years in denver um but the, the, here's the interesting thing, um, and, and I, I share this all the time, and, we, and we, when you go to school for photography, you think that if you're a really good photographer, you will make a lot of money, right? The best right. photographers make the most money. Then you get in the marketplace, and you realize, and you see a photographer that's really working a lot, and their work's not very good, and you go, my work's better than that photographer. Why are they working all the time, right? And so it's just kind of like you go, what's the secret, right? Well, I learned the secret, and it was marketing. And I always call it the power of eight, you know, getting your work in front of the right person at least eight times. They remember who you are. It established a credibility. Um, uh, art directors, art buyers, clients, whatever they hire are no different than any other human being, meaning that they um, have a favorite group of photographers that they will go to. But at some point, they're going to run out. The, that Those photographers will be booked and they need a – I always say – um, I'll, I'll make a pitch to an art director and I say, hey, you know, I'd like to come into my portfolio. And they say, well, we have five photographers we use on a regular basis. And then I would, in the early days, I would scratch that off my list saying, well, okay, they're booked. I mean, there's no way of getting in that door. And then I realized, just like me, because I would hire assistants and I would have my favorite 10 assistants. And then, you know, I have a shoot on Tuesday. And of course, I wait till Monday night to call for an assistant and I call my favorite assistant and they're booked and they're second favorite assistant's booked or, you know, out of town, whatever. And I go through my whole list, right? Eventually, I'm down to my 10th, you know, the last of my favorite uh, uh, assistant, and they're not available. And all of a sudden, I'm in a panic, right? I need a body for tomorrow. I've told the client I'm going to have an assistant, and I'll take anyone that has a pulse, right? That's how <laughs> desperate I am. Well, art directors, art buyers, photo editors, they all have the same problem. They will go to their favorite group, and, and eventually that, that, uh, you know, that list runs out. And so now they're in a panic. they got to hire someone because their boss is saying, we need this done next Tuesday, whatever. And so who do they call? the person that is the most credible in their mind, which is the one that gets their name in their brain. And eventually Joel Grimes comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not any better of a photographer than when I showed him the first, or I pitched him the first time, but advertising works because our human mind works like it just it works to where if you get ABC carpet cleaning in your head long enough that when you have a problem with your carpet, you're going to call the name that pops into your head. Even though you don't know how good ABC carpet cleaning really is, somehow the credibility of that fact is in your brain. It must be good. And so I got, I've gotten so many jobs by just pounding the art director, creative director, whatever, art buyer, enough times. And eventually the phone call you know, is there. Becky's queen of carpet is way better, by the way. <laughs> and she makes wicked macaroni, I know from experience. Are you still going in and showing your book, or are you at a point where... No, are... I have a rep now in uh, in, in New York City, but um, and that's a danger, too, to have a rep in some ways, because really, I'm my best rep. I represent myself the best, but I don't have time to do that now. Yep. Um, you know, and I get, I get uh, you know, comments to, you know, my social media. Someone will say, well, yeah, Joel teaches now because he can't, you know, he can't get any work in the yeah, real that world. That makes me crazy. Whatever. I hear that too. I'm and like, and, and, and I, I just said this, but, you know, just in this, the first of this year, January, I probably will, I will make more money in January shooting commercially than I will teach on my teaching all year. So I'm still, I'm still doing campaigns. I'm still doing work, but I don't really actively pursue it like I used to. And the reason why is that 
um, for 35 years, I pounded the streets. And I, I, when I say I pounded the streets, there's probably not a photographer on the planet that has pounded the streets harder than I have. I mean, it's just been a crazy ride. And, um, and it's paid off for me. But that's a long haul, right? That's a long time to be doing something. And, you know, um, if, if you're there, you see people all the time that, that they'll, like the Beatles, they finally said, we, we've done it. You know, it's time to quit, right? And with the commercial advertising, it's a rat race. There's no, there's no, you know, getting paid is like the, you know, the craziest thing on the planet, right? Getting your money out of these people. And I've done that for 35 years. And so as the, the opportunity started to come along to teach, I just was like, wow, this is really cool. And this is fun. And I love it. And then I just started sort of squeezing out more of my commercial work. And at first I just squeezed out the stuff I didn't really like to do. And then eventually I, I kind of weeded down to, I try to do about four to five campaigns a year. And so with that, I can live off that for the most part. And so if the right project comes along, like I just put a bid on a project and I was kind of like, mm, do I really want to do this? And so I just kind of rack up the numbers. And if I get it, then I have a smile on my face. If I don't, then I don't really care either. What do you think of the marketing path that photographers have to take now? Because things like workbook have changed. Black book's totally gone. Direct mail isn't the same as, you know, when you were really young in the business. Um, the, the pathway to being a marketer or marketing yourself as a photographer today, what do you think that looks like? Well, the model always changes a little bit because, uh, you know, like I remember when we could actually talk to somebody on the phone. That was kind of a, right. you know, now it's like really hard to talk to someone on the phone. But you have voicemail, you have uh, things, but it still comes down to our brains still work the same way. Maybe we have a little more clutter coming at us today than we did back when I was in the 90s or in the 80s. Um, but the fact is that it still works the same. And that is you have to get your, you have to position yourself in the marketplace to where when it comes time for an art director or art buyer or somebody to pull the trigger, they remember your name. So it's all about name recognition. It's not even really so much about image recognition. Now, you would say that's true because I've branded myself three light, edgy, sports kind of look. And that's an image recognition. But really, it's the name that's tagged onto that. <clears throat> um, so it's it, the, the same rules apply. It's just that maybe the avenue is a little bit different. But I would say this, that there's nothing better than a one-on-one -on -one sit down with anybody. There's nothing better than that. Now I'll give you a little insight to how this works and how I've learned, I've learned so many street smarts, little tips along the way that I could write a whole book on this. But so you start making your cold calls, which is brutal, just brutal. Right. And when I first started on my cold calls, I was like, my tongue felt like it was 50 pounds and I could hardly get my name out. And I was very nervous and and anyways, I talk a lot about that, how to overcome that. But um, when it comes comes to the um, the point where you actually maybe say you get somebody on the phone or you get that opportunity to do your little pitch and then they um, respond to that, right? They say, I'm really busy, and they hang up or whatever. They're really rude to you. So, so you have um, – I used to have like a little red – a little sticker and a little blue sticker. So a red sticker was like a bad, you know, response. A blue was like, you know, like good. Or say it could have been red and green. I don't remember. I'm colorblind anyways. But but I remember that I had these little stickers that meant a good a good response or a bad response, right? So the thing is that, so so you want to look for a good response, right? So someone says, oh, hey, oh, you're a new photographer in town? Oh, that's great. And where did you go to school? And what kind of work do you do? And they're really nice. And you go, wow, that's a good response, right? And so uh, you say, I would like to come in and show the portfolio. So, um, sure, come on in. So you're like, wow, you're excited. You go in, you show your portfolio. And they go, well, thank you very much. That was wonderful. And it was a great experience. And you walk out the door. And you're like going, yay, I'm, you know, I'm going to get work from this agency. And they never call. And you wonder why. And you think, well, okay. So then you have the rude response. You call up and they, ah, I'm really busy, you know, you know, and they don't gave you the time of day and you go, I'm never calling that person back, right? That agency sucks. So you have those two experiences. So you think the good experience, the one that you think, you know, they open the door to you and it's easy to get in. Well, if you, it was easy for you to get in the door, 
What about the other 30 photographers, 300 photographers? If this guy's a really nice guy or a really nice gal, and they're, you know, they're like, oh, come on in, right? Well, how many photographers do you think that person sees in a given year? A lot, right? So now you go, wait. So if they've seen 30 photographers or 300 photographers that year, not probably 300, but, but the fact is a lot came yeah, in the door. Number. Then your odds actually go down and you're, you know, the chances of you getting work, right? So I learned a little secret, and that was if someone was really rude to me on the phone, then I understood something that if I could get in the door to that art director, art buyer, then, my, then the chances are I was maybe one or two of the photographers in that year could get in the door. If I could get in the door, I got work. And I learned that. So every time I got a rude response, I just kept keying on that person. And eventually I got in the door, and then I got work. It was just the craziest thing on the planet. So it's the opposite. A lot of times what happens is, is the market, what we, how we perceive the marketplace is the opposite of how we normally approach it. We think, you know, again, the, the best photographer is going to make the most money in photography. It's not true. Um, so I always say, if you get a, re, good, a rude response, yes, that's money in the bank. <laughs> You're really just putting the corkscrew into somebody's brain then. <laughs> You're just kind of working your way in. Yeah, I'm working my way in. <laughs> And it's, it's not that hard, really. It's just it's, it takes persistence on your part, right? But who has time to market? Really, it's, I mean, you can find a lot of things to do outside of marketing. When I first got married, uh, we had this little apartment, dinky little thing in Washington, D.C. And so I didn't have an office, you know, so I had this table um, set up that I had all my marketing material on. I went and got some promos made up. And so I'd roll out of bed in my underwear and there's, there's my table right there. And so I'd, you know, start making my, my calls and whatever. And then when I got an office, I always put that table in the middle of my office so that when I walked into my office, I had to walk around the table. And so years later, I got big studios and I, I would have this huge space, but I always put this table in the middle of my office door. So I had to walk around it every day, every time day I had to get to my computer. I had to walk past that table. People would come in and go, what? What's going on here? And I have all this, you know, stuff spread on this table and stamps and envelopes and stuff. And I go, that's my marketing table. And they go, why don't you put it over there? There's plenty of room. I go, it doesn't remind me when it's over there. So I had to learn how that's to. That's a great trick. Actually. Yeah, I had to learn how trick. to remember the, the fact that I had to market every day. It's your own eight times. <laughs> yeah, I have yep. to force to myself. It's like working out. Who wants to work out? Well, you might get to the point where you really love it. That's a small percentage of people that actually work out and love it. But, you know, for those of us that don't like to go work out, you got to find a way to inspire yourself to get up and go to the gym. So I want to talk a little bit more about your commercial work of what you did the last maybe 10 jobs. What were the jobs that really stood out to you that you really loved and, and how did they unfold? Well, um, I get people asking me questions about um, like when I photograph a famous athlete or something, they say, you know, are, are you nervous, you know, because it's a $100 million athlete sitting in front of you, and they give you 15 minutes. I love pressure. I love high pressure. I love high pressure, short amount of time of working, meaning I work hard, but I'm saying I love that intensity of the moment. I like 15 minutes with a famous person than eight hours with a non-famous person because that drags it out too much. I want to go and have this energy explosion and then be done with it. And that's my personality, so that's not everybody's personality. But, um, but people ask me, am I nervous? And I say, not if I'm if the art director, creative, you know, director or whatever, is asking me to do the Joel Grimes thing, whatever I do. The Joel Grimes, well, I do a fair amount of different looks. But let's just say it's a three-light, edgy look, mm -hmm. grungy look. When I do that, I can do that in my sleep because I've done it hundreds, if not thousands of times. So when I have my athlete in front of me, I'm not nervous at all. I'm just going, okay, boom, bang, boom. I'm just making it happen. But if someone asks me to do something I don't do a lot of, or I'm kind of maybe just learning a technique, because I'm always doing crazy stuff, new techniques, um, then I get nervous because then I go, okay, the odds are I might make a mistake here and could screw this up. I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to, you know, they're paying me lots of money. I don't want to screw it up. So I like a job now. That is within my comfort zone, meaning that I know I can do really well. So um, I was a gymnast and um, I was taught that, you know, let's say you are working on your triple gainer, you know, full twisting, whatever, re grab the bar trick. Right. <laughs> and you can do that 20% of the time. Well, you don't put that in your routine, right? 
even if you did it 80% of the time, the odds are you're probably going to mess up during a, an event. And so um, the best gymnasts were the ones that were the most consistent. They could, they could do the routine, maybe not as flashy, but they could finish it. And so today when I do it and I work in the marketplace, I want to be able to be hired and accomplish it. And so a job I don't like is one that requires more than three hours of retouching per image. That's my limit, three hours for a composite. For a, for a non-composite, it's about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I'm bored. And at, at a retouch, I mean, a composite, uh, I don't know. They're, mine are really simple, right? That's another success that I had was I did simple composites. They weren't complex. So I, I fit within my attention span was, you know, three-hour retouch. But I've done jobs where I have 30 images and three-hour retouches add up to how much time you're sitting there trying to deliver that job. It could be a whole week of retouching, and that'll just put me in the... Do you outsource yeah. any of that? Are you no. retouching? No, and that's... Uh, people ask me that all the time, and I would be great. I'd love to outsource my work, but then it's not really my work. See, so I, I'm, I, I'm an artist, first and foremost. I have to make a living, right? And there's compromises in making a living. Um, but... I still want to be an artist. I want to see it all the way through. I want to say that's my image. I shot the background. So I've had jobs where they come to me and say, we want you to shoot the portraits, but we're going to supply all the backgrounds. I go, nope, I'm the wrong photographer for you. And they're like, Wah. And so I go, look, I'd rather you not pay me very much to go out through the backgrounds. I mean, I'll, because I go, I'm going to get this for $2,000 for a stock photo or whatever. And I go, well, okay. It, normally I'd charge 4000 for that, but I'll do it for 2000 because then I still keep it as my picture. You control the whole process. I control the whole process. <clears throat> now, if you look at my work, there's an underlying repetition of how that look is being delivered. <clears throat> and I'm colorblind. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so being colorblind and a retoucher is not a real good combination. You think it's not a real good combination. Yeah, I want to talk about this. I mean, one, you'd be a hell of a pre-press man. I mean, there's no question. You'd get, <laughs> like pre-flighting a file for, for print. Because it's all by grayscale, right? So I'm dying to know what you see. What, well, being colorblind, what do you see? Well, so so when I was shooting film, I would, you know, shoot chrome mm -hmm. typically. And then I'd, you know, it's processed. And then we'd sleeve it and hand it to the client. Now, if there was some kind of color cast, like an interior where you had lights that, you know, caused tungsten or whatever. Sure. You'd have to account for that. Well, that was actually easy, pretty easy because what I'd do is I'd take my 35 millimeter into the interior snap a picture, take it over, process it, you know, just hand do it. Doesn't care. It doesn't be sharp. Right. And then I'd take it to the color expert at the lab and I'd say, what filtration do I need? He'd go, you know, 30 red, you know. So you'd have your lab do it. Cause we, yeah. you know, we would do that too. You'd yeah. get a new emulsion lot, right? And, you'd, and the, yep. the yep. store would hold your emulsion yep. lot for you, but you'd get that. You'd have to test out the color and say, okay, yep. on this, I need a 0.025 M. Exactly. So you'd have somebody else do the color. I'd, I'd have someone else do it. Then I just go you. back, take my four by five, put the filtration on there, boom, hand it and right. be delivered. And that's pretty easy. Now, <clears throat> when it came to digital, I kind of panicked. I was like, I don't even know if I can do this because I could never print color. Right. I could print black and white. And so when I kind of did, I locked myself in a room and I said, I'm going to do this really grungy look. And I really like this. I did this three lighting approach and I want, I'm going to go for it. And so I just started working my, you know, I take a color image and I take a black and white. Now I learned black and white in the zone system in mm -hmm. Ansel Adams zone system. So I knew I could change the color or the value of the skin tones by what filter pack you could put on. So you change the red or the orange or whatever. <clears throat> and so when I first started doing this grungy look, I just took the color, made a black and white version, manipulated the skin tones, did a blending mode, like overlay, soft mm -hmm. light. And I started building this grunge, right? That's the Joel Grimes look. Right. Well, this is done 10 years ago. And I, there was no, there's no tutorials on this, but the fact is, I built this look, and then it kind of desaturated a little bit. So I like desaturation. So then I would also desaturate a little bit more. Now, let's say I take a picture and there's some green in it. I don't see green at all. So I don't even see green. I see it as tan. Um, uh, the, like pink, I don't see pink. Purple's really tough for me. Uh, yellow, I see pretty good. But if you add a little bit of green to that yellow, I, I don't see any of the green wow. into it. Now, but so 
there, there's a way that I can sort of figure that out. It's like take my hue saturation layer and I just go over to the red or the green and I pull it to the positive and I go all of a sudden, meh, it neons. I go, ah, you can tell what there's my green right. or there's my whatever. So my skin tones originally started getting a little too red and yellow, even though I didn't really see it very well. So I go, okay, I'm just going to pull the red and yellow back out and maybe desatch the, the master a little bit. And so every image that I photograph and I, re, I retouch, I take a, a hue saturation. I minus the master, I think minus 10. Somewhere around there, the red's about minus 10, 15, and same with the yellows. So through some experimentation, you came out with the right formula. That gives you also your signature look. So I got, I got to think, though, too, that your, your time shooting transparency helped you understand the color that you see because you're looking through at the trans. You've got to be talking with clients, and, and conversation about the color has to be coming up. I would think that, well, that, that having the ability okay. to look at trans did help you somewhere so, gain that knowledge. So here's an interesting observation yeah. okay so i went to dealer car dealer and i want to buy a new car i drove volkswagens for years i used to rebuild the engines i, I rebuilt everything on a volkswagen you could rebuild mm -hmm. so my wife said finally it's time you get a new car i mean a real one and that has a you know water cooled not air cooled but i went and i bought it was a used it was a year two years old but it was a, a toyota forerunner and i went to the dealership i kept telling my wife i want this that this is what i want right there and it was a gray and so she's, you know, that's pretty easy, smoke kind of dark gray. So I come home with a green Toyota 4Runner. And my wife's like, I thought you wanted gray. I go, this is gray. And so that's how I don't see green, right? <laughs> right. And so, um, but here's, here's a really weird observation. I would go to like, say like walk into Gap and there's a rack of, or a, a stack of t-shirts. So maybe there's 20 different colors. From brown to tan to green to blue to all the, and I walk up to the shirt I like every single time. It's green. It's green. I, I don't know why. I don't see, see the green, but I like it. My bot, my my brain is drawn. I'm drawn to it. Now that's fascinating. It is me. fascinating. So, but here, but think about this. So I'm retouching, and I'm creating an image, and I'm creating what I like, and in the end I end up with something that I put out to the world. Do you know that no one's ever said anything about my color balancing? They say, oh, gee, your, your color balancing sucks. No one's ever said that. So I'm getting doing national ad campaigns, and they're going, we love your work. We love it. And we just want you to do your thing, right? And I'm going, well, I'm colorblind, you know? <laughs> and so, so, but what, so what's happening is I'm allowing my intuition to drive the, the whole thing, and I'm just ending up at an endpoint that fits me, and therefore – I'm putting it out there and it works. So now have I made a few mistakes here and there? I've, I've done this where, um, you know, someone will say, oh, there's a little bit of green in the cast in that. And I don't see that. And I, I can pull it out pretty, pretty quick. <coughs> but, um, but it's a weird process. So now, but, but let me give you an insight to photography that will actually change the way you look at photography. And, and, and this will, this is free of charge. Okay. This will change your whole approach to photography, and that, and that is this, this concept. That is that when we look at the world around us, we say we have skin tones and we want accurate skin tones. So we take back in the days of film, we had, you know, Kodachrome. Kodachrome did not re render blues, right? So when right. you shot the sky, they were kind of muddy gray. Well, everyone got used to muddy gray skies, right? And then when Fuji came along, made an E6 film that actually had the warms and the cools mm -hmm. and everything, people went – uh, the first time I laid down a Fuji uh, uh, film on an architectural shoot I was doing with blue skies, the art director went, whoa, what did you do to the blues? Mm -hmm. Well, they're there. That's the blues that we see, but they were used to Kodachrome muddy gray skies, and they accepted it. Okay? So we will accept something that's not real as being the norm, the everyday norm, because that's what we're being presented with every day. And so, um, so when it comes to reality, film or digital will never, ever accurately represent skin tones that we see in the real world. It's impossible because it's not, it's not reality. It's a representation of reality, mm -hmm. and it's a process of you know, capturing light and whatever. But it's not real. You can't do it. So people come to me and say, this brand of camera, oh, my gosh. You know, they, the skin tones are just <laughs> like, uh, so accurate. I'm like, no, there's no such thing. 
And there's no such thing as accurate skin tones in a, in a, in a camera, uh, whatever process you use. You can get some close. And so if you have an account uh, that Ferrari hires you to photograph their red Ferrari, you want to get that red Ferrari as, as close as possible, but you can't get the exact red that it is in the real world. So there's an advantage that we have as artists in as we make the process of creating an image. And that is, if I know that I can't get accurate skin tones, then why try? So people say, okay, do you uh, do custom white balancing? And then do you calibrate your monitors, blah, blah, blah. I go, no, I don't do any of that. They go, what? And I go, because I'm not trying to capture reality. So the secret to being, I think, a successful photographer is that you don't give people reality. You give them fantasy. See, that's something that's not real every day. Right. See, real, I can take a picture right out the window here, and there's some beautiful white fluffy clouds and everything, and I can take that picture, but that's a boring picture. Now, if I can't take an ND filter and I set my tripod up on the balcony out here and I do a five-minute exposure and those clouds are really soft, now that can make it a really interesting photograph because now I'm giving my audience something they don't see every day. They're going, well, that's right. cool. How'd you do that, right? right. Well, Ansel Adams, he did all his guys are black, right? He built all this drama, and it was in black and white. So he was not, a, a, by any means, a purist of a you know landscape photographer. He didn't capture the way the world we see every day. He captured the way he wanted you to see it with a red filter. Yeah. yeah. So so here's this here's here's an interesting thought, and that is this: that my colorblindness is my greatest asset. Yeah. It's the ace up my sleeve because now I don't worry about color balancing. I don't care about trying to uh, capture the world as it is. What I care about is creating something that you hopefully find interesting or I find interesting first and then I present it to you. So I have a, a huge benefit of now not having this burden of color balancing my images. I kind of now imagine half of our audience at least going out and trying to get glasses or contacts that will make them partially colorblind. <laughs> Does that exist? I don't know, but maybe. Now we if not, we should make them. Yeah. No, but no, I think no. I think you're. I think you're right, I, and I think it makes an incredible sense. And that's why I'm saying I think you're. You know, you'd be amazing as a pre-pressman because you understand the numbers, right? It's a different way of looking at it. So, um, within the context of this business, you have found a way to. Look at the challenges that we all face, but do it in your way and put your spin on it and really give it your style, setting yourself apart completely. Well, we I always say that I don't know your story necessarily, mm -hmm. but I do know that we all have experiences in our lifetime that maybe alter the way we look at the world around us or how we function. Renee, you had a motorcycle accident. You know, then that event shapes you. Well, it got you into photography, yeah. but it also shapes you today and how you approach things because, um, you know, like I got sick last summer, just not, not, not like, you know, maybe, but I got sick enough to where I was in bed for 10 days and got, you know, took about two months to recover in terms of my strength. And that just shocked me because I thought I was Superman. Mm -hmm. Right. So now all of a sudden I'm basing decisions today based on my experience of last summer. Like, for example, I now know I have a time stamp on this planet I better get done what I want done, right? <laughs> so I'm like looking at, okay, I do this project. I get this project done. But events change us and motivate us and get us to where we're hopefully going. So there's no bad experience, right? So you could say that, you know, you were left on the doorstep. You were an orphan and you were abandoned by your parents. And then you, you know, went through the system, whatever, and it shaped you. And they say, well, that's a bad experience. Well, it might have been bad, but it also does and gives you maybe an edge in the marketplace because now you're tenacious, you're a fighter, mm -hmm. you're a survivor, you know, you don't take, you know, no for, you know, right. no. And so you get through life and people go, how, how do you do what you do? I don't know. It's just my life experiences have caused me to be who I am. So, so I look at like, for example, now I look at being colorblind or if you're four foot two or you're eight foot two. Whatever that is, something shapes you. It's going to drive you down a path. And I have this thing now. I'm a good talker, by the way, so you guys know this. <laughs> I have this, this Making it really easy for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have this thing now that I've, I've thought about this a lot. Okay. So, you know, we hate to be criticized, you know. And, and so when you put an image up on 
you know, your social media, someone says you're amazing and you go, oh, thank you. You know, you're amazing. You're amazing. Amazing. You get 99 praises and you get that one critique where someone says you suck. You know, I hope you have a day job, whatever. And so when you go to bed at night, you know who you, what you remember. You don't remember the 99 praises. You remember the one critique. Mm-hmm. And that's our human nature. I talk a lot about our human nature and stuff. But, but the fact is, is here's an interesting thought. Okay. So, so you, you go and get your, your work critiqued or whatever. Hopefully... You're not. I hope you don't get your work critiqued because I hate to critique people's work. And I tell you why, because I don't believe I'm qualified to critique someone's work. I don't believe anyone's called really truly qualified to critique someone's work because of this. And that is if your end result is that you want to stand out in the marketplace, you want to be a super rock star, a photographer. How do you get there? Well, look at the super rock star photographers. They are people that are doing what they do. And they don't care what people think. They just do it. Mm-hmm. And they just rock the world with it, right? So what happens is we have all these photographers that are trying to fit in this mold of what is considered an acceptable ph- photograph or a traditional photograph or a t- traditional approach from composition to you know the rule of thirds and all these things that we have, which are great. They're great things. Great, great rule of thirds is a great concept, but it's not guaranteed that's going to work. I did center out stuff all the time, right? But... So here's what I say is that if you follow your intuition, it will never leave you, lead you down the wrong path because your intuition takes you down the path that's you. So how could you ever say your intuition could lead you wrong? Well, it can't. But what happens is we don't follow our intuition. We follow the little voice that says, you're doing it wrong because your professor said to use a rule of thirds or whatever it is, your Mm -hmm. colleagues or whatever. And so we end up listening to another voice. And so... And I'm no creative genius here, folks. I haven't like rocked the world necessarily with my creative geniusness. What I've done, though, is I've stuck with my intuition and I've said, I'm going to let it go. I'm just going to do what I do. And then when that critique comes along and someone says that you're a lousy photographer, I go, you know what? That's just, again, that's your opinion. And I can't listen to that voice. I have to listen to my voice. I think that's interesting. I, I actually critique a lot of people. Like I, people will call me or, or um, sign up through our website to, to have me critique their work. And I always say to them, look, I'm just one individual giving you my opinion. That's right. I do think, though, that there is some value to listening to pe- what other people have to say because sometimes they will see something in your work that you didn't. Absolutely. Either good or bad. Yeah. And it might really help you, know, you kind of down a road like, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. I need to expand on that. If you have a trusted person. person. That is their end result is to lift you up, right? To move you forward to greater things, right? Then that's a great thing. Well, you got to take it with a grain of salt because, yeah. you know, as a photographer, I've always known, or at least I learned early, I can show my portfolio to two art directors, and the one on the right is going to love it, and then the one on the left right. is going to think I am a crappy photographer right. because there's same opinion. work, there's opinions, personal opinion, personal preference. <clears throat> um, it's just we resonate with different people for different reasons. That's why I have music that you know. We like and don't like. Yeah. And we buy shoes that, you know, some glow in neon colors and some are gray or whatever. And we're drawn to different things. But they're actually green. Well, they're actually green. But you know what's really <laughs> kind of crazy is I'll walk into REI and there's, you know, the men's rack and the women's rack. And I'm just walking in. And I walk right over the women's rack and I pull a shoe off. And Amy, my wife says, that's the women's shoe. I'm like, I like it. <laughs> it's so pink. now we know that Joel Grimes wears green women's shoes all the time. Yeah. Size 13 ladies. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny how we're drawn to certain things. Yeah, it is. I think if we all liked the same things, it'd be incredibly boring. Yeah. It would be. Yeah. Or we all had the same way of learning or, um, you know, like, like I was terrible, terrible in the classroom. I was looking out the window. I was in sports. I wanted to jump off roofs and, you know, make, crazy things and do things. Um, and so academically, I didn't do very well in, the, in, the, in that structure. And so I was kind of taught that I was dumb, you know, because I didn't get A's. And my, I had a brother who was a straight A student, and he, he got a B once, and he was like bummed. And I got a B once, and I was doing the jig, right? <laughs> and so, so, so but, but in the real world, it's funny that um, it's true that most A students end up working for, B, for C students. Because C students have to function outside of the academics, so they become very good right. people, people, salespeople, managers, things like that. And so um, there's nothing wrong with being a C average student. What about an F average student or That's, like a D? I was definitely well, in the D yeah, I, I, got, I got a lot of Ds, and, and uh, you know, but my 
my my PE offset those. My my art and my PE classes offset my D's and my F's. But um, but it's okay to not be a good academic structured you know kind of student. I, I think the majority of people on this show have always said I was a bad student. I was a terrible student. So I wonder what that is about creatives where they just are not made for the classroom. I think it's a way to compensate. A lot of creative people, they have ADD, they have learning disabilities, they have something that um, in a normal classroom setting sets them back. I think it's just, you know, the brain is just wired differently and fires differently. And that's what makes creative people is Mm -hmm. that they just see things differently. And there's no way that you can teach that, you know. Right. Mm -mm. There's no way we could be lawyers. <laughs> yeah. no, it just doesn't work. Or accountants. Or, yeah. or well, you can be creative and it's an accountant. Just add a couple zeros. But, <laughs> and stay or, out of jail. Here's yeah. one thing I've learned too, though, um, that there's nothing I can't really learn. It's whether or not I have the attention span and the time to learn it, right? So it may take me twice as long to learn something as somebody else, but I can learn it if I really have the attention span to get there. So um, that also gives me confidence that if I have a hurdle – like, for example, when I learned Photoshop, I, you, you know, you, 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 someone will say, you got to work in smart objects. I'm like, what's a smart object? So then you go and you try to figure that out. And you go, oh, my head's spinning, right? And then you go and you learn there's smart objects from raw. There's smart objects. You can make something into a smart object. And there's smart objects in, in filters. And there's all these smart objects. And they're now all working and doing the same thing. So now your head's spinning. You go, what in the heck? I'm, you know. So then you have to go and say, I need to hur- get over this hurdle. I got to learn what a smart object is. So you go and find someone that's really smart and they teach smart objects and you go through the tutorial and you go, ah, this makes sense now. Okay. And so you get over that hurdle. So anytime I have a hurdle, I know if I have the attention span and the time, I can get over it. Renee Renee can teach you about smart objects, by the way. She's really good at it. Stop. <laughs> it's true. Um, no, I, I mean, I find with with teaching and learning, one of the biggest hurdles that a lot of people find is, you know, people will, will write people who teach and go, well, I can't learn this and I can't learn this and mm-hmm. I can't learn this. And oftentimes it's it's finding ways to teach it in a way that they learn. You know, there's people who learn kinesthetically. There's people who learn, mm-hmm. you know, visually. And there's people, all these different learning styles. And a lot of times, like the school system, for example, is, is often set up for like one or two, <coughs> one or two yeah. learning styles and that's it. And then you have all these people out there thinking that they're dumb. And then all you have to do is just sit there and analyze, like, okay, well, show me something or, t- like, teach me something. And then they'll either show you how to do it or they'll write it down or whatever. And they go, oh, that's how you learn. And then you sit there and, and explain it to them. I had somebody explain um, – I love quantum, quantum physics. And I had somebody explain it to me in by using the analogy of an orange. Is that I understand oranges. So mm-hmm. explain basic quantum physics to me using the analogy of an orange. And then that – really changed the way that I, that I would teach. And I mean, it, it's kind of heartbreaking a little bit. I think when you find so many people who are just like, well, I'm dumb and I can't do that. And you're not dumb, man. Mm-hmm. You just gotta, gotta find another way to put that information in your brain in a way that is, is, you know, the way your life experiences have taught you. Are you going to get into this analogy? Let's go. Mm-hmm. And now I'm curious. But she's back to color now, orange. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the color of macaroni, basically. <laughs> No, so, I'm not getting into it because this is Joel's thing, <laughs> not well, mine. Well, teachers often also try to um, impress the, their their viewers, their audience, or whatever, by being the smartest person in the room, and 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 there's a big danger for that because no matter, let's say, I get in front of a bunch of people that are, um, I'm teaching Photoshop, and then I look down the audience, and there's the number one retoucher in L.A. for movie posters sitting in the front row. That's happened to me. Mm-hmm. So if I'm up there trying to be the 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 smartest person in the room, that's going to get shot down very quickly because there's always going to be someone in the room that knows more about the topic than I do. So I've discovered that if I um, – my goal isn't to impress through the knowledge that I have, but my, my goal is to inspire others to move forward wherever they're at. Whatever point you are at your learning, I'm going to hopefully be there to encourage you to move on to the next level. So it's not not about impressing the crowd. I mean, who doesn't want to be, you know, make an impression, right? But it's really not my goal. So um, it's served me well. Right. What advice do you have for portrait photographers getting into it? Do you think they should specialize in one type of uh, portraiture on their website or put a lot up? Well, when you're starting out, so so I'm giving a talk. I mean, I threw these topics out to, uh, um, you know, Scott for Photoshop World and 
And one of them that he, he picked that I didn't think he was going to pick it, but how to, how to land a hundred thousand dollar ad campaign. And, um, but it took me 10 years to go from $700 a day, right? Which by the way, I thought that was a lot of money. But when the average day rate in Denver at the time was 1500 a day, at least that's what I was told. They said, well, you're starting now. You better, you know, go on the low end. So 700 a day, I thought, wow, that's a lot of money. Of course, if you only work twice a year, it's not going to pay a lot of bills. But <laughs> I went from 700 a day to 10000 a day. Well, it took me 10 years, 10 years of pounding and hoofing it, starting at, you know, 8 in the morning and working until 9 o'clock at night every day, every day. And so, you know, you and I did a lot of pictures that you wouldn't want to put on your wall, right? They're just headshots of, you know, things, CEOs and whatever. And so I had to work through all that. So I would say that you have to work through the ranks, number one, to get to a point where you go, I'm photographing a $100 million athlete and, and getting paid big bucks for it. So it can't happen overnight. It's got to be for the long haul. But here's what I would encourage. Anyone building a portfolio, because you're going to put it in front of a, in a commercial, you know, like art director, photo editor, whatever, is that... When I, I went through a period where I had no tear sheets, so no no work that was supported my photography through print ads or whatever. There was nothing, no tear sheets. And then I started getting tear sheets, and I like I just filled my portfolio with tear sheets, right? And I discovered that was a really bad thing because art directors, creative directors, graphic designers would start looking at the typeface and. Well, who did this? What ad agency did that work? Whatever. So then they were distracted by the from away from the photograph. It did establish credibility, yeah. But it really took away from my creative, you know, vision. So, so, and then I learned another little secret, and that was this: is that usually when I'm getting hired to do a client shoot. The end result is not going to be a portfolio shot. Yeah. I was going to say the, the, the yeah. tear sheet is not where you're going to find yeah. your best work. Yeah. So I stacked, and I say this number is just a general number, but 80% of my work in my portfolio is all self-assignments. Mm -hmm. And then I might have some shots. They, they were more, they kind of look like self-assignments because they were named athlete or whatever, but they're in my book because I kind of took the one image I liked and did it the my way. And then, or sometimes they were actually the final image from the ad campaign, but- I learned that when I presented my work, my vision, and by self-assignments, by the way, I do 50, I, I say that number, but try to do one a week. No one's paying me. I'm setting it up, getting a model, doing one a week. I wish I could do more. But the fact is, if I can do one a week, 50 self-assignments a year, I can literally rebuild my portfolio every year. And that's what I should be doing. Not having a portfolio where you have images that are 20 years old or 10 years old sitting in there. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, my encouragement is to get really cool work is to go out and create it yourself, self-assignments, and then just keep putting it in. Keep putting it in. Eventually, an art director is going to go, wow, I love that shot. I got a great I got a great campaign that we could use that look. Where are you getting inspiration from to come up with <coughs> 50 shots a year that are, that are book worthy? To me, what I, what I find really interesting is that given a subject that comes in my studio or I have an idea, I say, let's, let's do a photo shoot. And I might have a maybe a direction in mind. I say well, I'm gonna do a wedge wall, and I'm gonna you know do this look all in black, whatever. It never. It I, I always end up with something I never thought I would end up with. So it's I always say, welcome to my studio. Today's gonna be one big experiment, because it's really just going and playing and trying something, and I just go and let the flow happen. So I don't overscript it. See, if I script it too much, then it's going to look like it's scripted. So I just let it go. And I go, that is really cool. I can't believe I did that today, you know? And it just falls into place. I would say that about out of, so every 10 self-assignments, maybe one's kind of a, it turns out to be flat. This just didn't get much out of it. But almost every time I bring a subject in, I will get a shot that I go, wow. That is an incredible shot. Do you ever photograph stuff and then go back to edit it maybe like six months or a year later, just kind of like revisit the work and see maybe, you know, is there a way that I can? I wish I it? could because I look at some of my work and I go, oh, I wish I could redo that. You know, it's, it's almost an icon image that's, you know, been out there, the Joel Grimes, whatever, mm -hmm. swimmer. And I wish, oh, I wish I could redo that. But I don't. 
because number one, I got a whole list of images I'm supposed to re be retouching. So I don't have time to go back. I got too many. I, I, there's so many images that I like. Let's say I do a shoot and I do five different angles and or different looks, and I go and I like one really well and I retouch it, and then I go all of a sudden the next week I'm doing another shoot and I leave those other four and never really touched them. They're sitting there waiting. I think I'll get back to them. Never do. And so I wish, in a way, maybe if I, you know, got sick and had to be in bed for a year, that might be a good thing, right? I could re catch up on a lot of my retouching, but. It's hard for me to go back. Do you have any books now or personal projects that are bigger picture that you're working on? You mean books, a project I'm working mm -hmm. on? Well, I'm doing this project this summer. I don't call it a book project because I'm hoping to get a book out of it, you know. Um, and um, I've had a lot of publishers approach me to do books, but um, I don't want to call it a book deal because my kids have taught me something. They're really interesting. Uh, they're in their 20s. Uh, they're doing film. They're doing really well. But um, they... Like, for example, um, they direct, they write, they script. The three of them work together. Um, they got to produce. They got to do the whole thing. And But they don't want to – they don't call themselves any one thing. They don't say, I'm a director, right? They say, I'm, I'm a creative – we're a creative agency. So they don't want to be pigeonholed into being a production, film production house or directors or, you know, DP, whatever. They want to be the creative agency. Mm -hmm. And so – I've learned that from them in that when I do a project, I don't want to say, well, I'm going to do a book project because I'm hoping to have gallery shows. I'm hoping to have other things that are going to come out of that. So, uh, you know, I don't want to say I'm doing a book project, but I'm going to be spending three months on the road this summer. I love your type 55s. Oh. Those are great. Well, and, and I'm nostalgic, but I love the 55s. Yeah. Well, okay. My boys, my son, Ben, he's about 27. He loves film. He loves the old look. He goes through all my archives, and he's like, ah, drooling. <laughs> and 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 so, you know, he's always saying, you know, you should get find some Type 55 and go back and do some portraits. And I, well, I shot Type 55 portraits for seven, eight years. I shot about 7,000, 8,000 sheets of film, all portraits. I did it. I mean, I did it. I, 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 I and then you know, I made a lot of money with that look in the in the late '90s into the 2000. And um, the 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 really it came down to the phone stopped ringing for that look, mm -hmm. and digital came along and just kind of changed it all, killed it. Yeah. Now it almost comes back a little bit. Like, wow, that'd be kind of fun to do that. But but. Um, I always say this, okay? So when you talk about branding, I have a whole thing on branding. And, you know, I actually heard an expert on that, that knew about branding, like, you know, like a really a real expert. Um, so I, I, when I talk about branding, it's just the street, you know, smarts, branding concepts. <laughs> but, um, but anytime you try to bring a look to the marketplace and you do it right and you beat it in the ground, you repeat it over and over again, it takes about three years, three to five years to get it to the marketplace. And then that brand only has about a 10-year life, meaning that after about 10 years, you know, of, of exposure to the marketplace, Saturated. people get tired of it, yeah. right? And it's true that, you know, Annie Leibovitz can, you know, do her same thing. You know, she's probably one of the most celebrated photographers of our generation. You know, there's there's iconic photographers that can live through, you know, a certain – well, even Richard Avedon, he did all fashion. Then he did the book on the American West, yeah. a totally different look. Pick anybody. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at Irving Penn's work. Yeah. You know, I mean, he shot frozen food. Yeah. You know, like really amazing images of frozen peas and stuff and yeah. did some of the most amazing portrait work ever. Yeah. Um, people are chameleons in the sense that they gravitate towards something else and just have to experiment with it. Yeah. yeah. So I got some new looks I'm working on right now. I'm shifting gears. I haven't done a composite in over a year. And well, and well, so... Um, you miss it? Well, the nice... Okay, so 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 number one is that... When I was doing composites early, people said I was no longer a photographer. I'd sold out, you know, whatever. And then I, you know, I had that argument where I said Ansel Adams, you know, manipulated and so therefore I can and be a photographer. And then I realized, well, I'm not really a photographer. I'm an artist with a set of tools. So I have that whole talk, right? So I, I can still call myself a photographer, but really I'm just an artist, right, with a set of tools. So then I started doing composites for 10 years. And then now I'm doing some stuff in camera. And so people are like, oh, you're back. You're back. <laughs> like, no, actually, I'm just ready to do something different. And the, but the, here, but the thing about a composite is it, 
that, that marriage between the subject and the background, right? There's this marriage that goes on mm-hmm. that the background really plays a huge role in how the overall look, right? And so composite makes it a lot easier because I can go shoot the subject in the, st- the studio, then go out and find this great backdrop, perfect light, you know, maybe on a Sunday morning, no cars on the streets. I get this backdrop. Then I bring it in and make the marriage happen and people go, oh, my God, that looks incredible, right? So now you do it on location, I can get pretty much the same result, but you got to deal with cars in the streets and people and all the permits and all the whatever. And it's a big production. And so, um, you know, but either way, it doesn't matter to me. Either the photograph works in camera or it works through a composite. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. What are you struggling with the most now? Um, well, I think that, you know, when the gear was like big, huge power packs on the floor, like the big Speedatrons and the Norman packs. And we had, you know, all this gear. And you could carry about 300 pounds, 350 pounds in gear, stack your car full of it. And then the packs got smaller and, you know, the light stands now stacker stands and all these things get smaller and smaller and smaller. I still take 350 pounds in gear. You know, it's like, you know, I got That's all this to me. gear. You know, it's like, okay, what happens if I need a scrim, you know, a 10-foot scrim, okay? Now I have all this stuff to do that. And then it's like I carry that stuff around. So I'm trying to shed my gear, right? Just get rid of it or say, don't bring it because that scenario may never happen. And I'll carry in my car. I'm going in the car, my car for three months. So I got to shed the gear. I can only carry so much. So, and I'm going to be sleeping in my car. Not every, I'll try to do every other night or every third night I'll do a hotel, but I'm trying to keep, because hotels are so freaking expensive. So I'm going to be on the road, try to save some money living out of my SUV and big Thule on top, but I have to limit my gear. So really it's learning how to get rid of the gear. So I'm doing these really cool techniques. I'm actually strobing these Harleys with no light stands, right? And now you see that on, you can see where you can strobe and multiple pop and do all this stuff. But I'm, 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 I'm doing even portraits. Now I can do a portrait um, and minimize my footprint of doing that portrait in terms of how many stands I have, how big the, you know, booms and the sandbags and all that stuff. So I'm minimizing how much gear I use to create an image. That's hard. Yeah. Cause you're used to having all that stuff. Yeah. It's easy to get rid of a speedo 4,800 pack cause there's nothing heavier, <laughs> but, but unless get, you have a boat right. and you need an anchor, you can throw it overboard. So in terms of your gear and we ask everyone this, what are you using now? What are you shooting on? What are you, what's your go-to camera lens? That's what well, you know, I have to, Say, first of all, and now I'm a Canon Explorer of Light. So, mm-hmm. um, and I love Canon. I love their gear. Um, and I've been using the, the 5D SR. I have the, the new 5D Mark IV. I, I just did my bag. I haven't even used it yet. Um, I do a lot of stitching. <clears throat> so I even get bigger megapixels. Even my portraits I stitch. I stitch with my, uh, my doing portraits and bracketing ISO. So to get HDR, to get 32-bit files. So I'm doing like nine exposures per portrait. Um, that's a whole other thing. But the point is, is um, I got my Canon gear. <clears throat> um, I bought a new 35, Canon 35 millimeter 1.4 lens, their version two. And it is the sharpest lens that I've ever used. It's like freaking unbelievable. And I'm doing super shallow depth of field, outdoor strobing, uh, either high speed syncing with my Canon speed lights or I use ND filters. So I'm getting really shallow depth of field with a super, not with a semi wide angle lens. So I got this great look I'm doing that with. Um, and I got my typical lenses that I use, my 24 to 70 two, uh, 2.8 version two. Um, I just bought a 51 two, which I've been holding off on that lens because I have a 518 costs like $115, $20. And it's ultra sharp. And 18 looks great. And then I thought, well, I'm going to see if I, you know, maybe go a little bit shallower depth of field. So I bought the 512. I just took it on this European tr- trip. And um, it's pretty darn cool. But um, uh, what else? In terms of, you know, like I used, I still use the Paul C. Buff Einsteins. You know, I've been using them. I've been with Paul C. Buff in terms of using his gear for back in the old ultra 1800s. You know, I gave up my Norman packs and got those things and they were kind of clunky, but they were pretty powerful and they're, you know, mono lights, um, lights, light. 
you know, light's light. Right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It's it's funny. A lot of people don't think that. We just nope. did a tutorial with uh, Tim Tatter, another sports photographer. He yep. uses all Einsteins. Mm -hmm. And I get this email from someone saying um, they're disappointed because yeah. he's using Einstein's. Oh, all and, the and time. He, I get emails and, too. And and they, I guess, thought his work was made with the most expensive brown color or pro mm -hmm. photo or whatever it is mm -hmm. out there. And we kind of had this back and forth in the email. And it's like, you got to get past thinking that a light or a, a piece of gear is going to make your photography like instantly better. And like, it just wasn't having it. it we like, fall into that trap because we're human. And I was, I was using an RB. I bought that in college at painted houses. It was the knockoff. I say knockoff, but the alternative to it, Hasselblad. Hasselblad was cool. You know, the RB, Mamiya RB was like, okay, the cheap old, you know, you know, brand. And then who's making lenses for Hasselblad now? Mamiya. Mm -hmm. And they made the best lenses, Right. But I always thought if I had a Hasselblad, I could do a better job, right? Because that, that was ingrained in my head, you know. And at one point, I almost bought a whole Hasselblad kit. kit. My wife said, why? I'm like, I don't know. I want to be a better photographer. <laughs> but I talked myself out of it. But the thing is, is we get sucked into that very easily. So when I talk about modifiers, I'm with Westcott. Um, I have my own beauty dish now, the Joel Grimes beauty dish. Never thought that would happen. Having your own name on a modifier is like the greatest thing on the planet, right? I've arrived. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but at any rate, um, you can go and on eBay find a modifier that's a five foot octo that's sixty bucks. It'll do the same exact job as the Pro Photo one that's five hundred dollars, but it won't last as long. There's, there's you know this really comes down to how long do you want a modifier to last, or how easy is it to set up and tear down? Mm -hmm. And so I set up and tear down all the time. So I want my modifiers to be easy to set up. And I want them to last, you know, not one year. I want them to have them five, ten year life to them. So you pay for the materials and the stitching of the, you know, whatever, and the easeability. But in terms of piece of diffusion, whatever, doesn't matter. And so I got caught up into whether it's silver interior or white interior, you know, all these things that, you know, we talk about modifiers. And I, sh I shatter that whole thing when I do my lighting thing. And so I was in a studio, I was doing a workshop. The studio was a huge studio in Phoenix and they had a big, huge bronze color, the $9,000 uh, parabolic, whatever they call it. 220 or 220. The, yeah. The big one. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm sitting there and the guy that was the, you know, that was in charge of the studio, he's like, if you want, I'll let you use the bronze color. <laughs> and I'm like, um, well, I go, okay, I, I can tell you right now that I, I can make the same thing same look from that brown color as a $100 uh, seven-foot umbrella. And he goes, impossible. I go, watch. In front of the class, I did it. I shot both side by side. And I had to bring the seven-footer in a little bit because it's a little smaller. And we got the same exact look. And he literally peed his <laughs> pants. And and so because— That's awkward. Well, because here's what happens. We, we, we think it, because it costs nine grand, it's going to make a better picture. It doesn't. It's how big the modifier is, how close it is to the subject, how much. I always teach lighting in two ways, in terms of either you want it softer or harsher. How do you build that? And I can teach you how to do it. I can teach a third grader how to build either a soft look or a harsher look by the choices of modifiers and how far it is from the subject, how much bounce comes back into the scene or ambient. So it's really, lighting is really simple when you get that down to it. But and that wasn't taught. I didn't learn that from a textbook or from a class. I learned that by taking every modifier I could and getting subjects and going, why is this doing this? Yep. What's going on here? 10,000 hours. Yep. Yep. Time in. Okay. Le legitimate question. Mac or PC? Well, Mac, I'm in since 1990. You were my favorite until now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it used to be you that, it, Joel. it used to be that, you know, Mac was kind of like the rebel, you know, you were kind of like, a, you know, out there by yourself. And then of course they took over the world and then, you know, whatever. But I think it's blended now. I don't think it really matters what platform you're on. Um, but at any rate, yeah. Dog or cat? Well, um, I've, it's funny because we've had cats when the kids were little, and then my son's got a dog now. He's he's kind of staying with us for a little bit. And I just think dogs are so much work. This is a puppy. I say puppy year, yeah. a little bit over a year. But um, I think cats have these personalities, and they're kind of quirky. They don't, they don't come to you. You know, they go, come here. They just take off. Yeah. You know, but dogs, yeah. you know. Will wag their tail and come to you. Yeah, much bigger jerks. Both 
cat people here. Total cat person. Cat people. Yeah. yeah. I've had fun. We always bring this up somehow. We're yeah. talking about dogs and cats in almost every interview. So we gotta we have to keep it going. And Joel, we know you kind of have to get out of here to get back to the, the convention and your meeting. So uh, thank you so much for making time uh, to get on this season of the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, this has been Very fabulous. Cool. I think we could talk with you for hours. So yeah. we do appreciate you well, taking the time. I have to the gift of gab and I have a story for everything. And I always say that when I go fishing, I tell the story about how big the fish is and it always gets bigger every time I tell it. So, <laughs> you know, I do elaborate a little bit, but, uh, any rate, I love, I love talking about what I love. Well, the, I appreciate the, it. The, the process you. of photography. Where can everyone find your work? Well, joelgrimes.com is my main workshop or my main website. And then I have the blog, mm-hmm. which is, you know, again, it's just joelgrimesworkshops.com. Awesome. We'll go there and sign up for one of Joel's workshops. Nothing's posted on, on, I'm, we're going to have one in the fall, but, um, it's really hard to do my own workshops. I just don't have time and I want yeah. to. Um, so we'll, we'll do one probably in uh, November. Awesome. Terrific. So to download this entire season of this podcast, you can go to rggedupodcast.com and also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google. You can also check us out at rggedu.com. Thanks a lot. Okay, the podcast is over. But before you go, I just wanted to let you know that I always take a penny from the penny tray at the gas station, but I never leave one. 